I want to read a passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn uh, with me. If not, I think uh, Riley's going to put it up overhead. It's from the book of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to start at the 14th verse. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He, co- he who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You know, as John brings this prologue, the first 18 verses or so of the first chapter of John is kind of a prologue to all that he's going to teach. When you study the scriptures, they teach us that there are four gospels. There are three gospels that that we call synoptic gospels. They're basically a biography of what Jesus did, where he was born, what what he did, the miracles he performed, all of those things. But John is different. And if you'll remember, John was Jesus' best friend. It was John who sat closest to Jesus on the night of the Passover, who laid his head over on his shoulder, who was there at the cross as Jesus was dying. John did not write about so much the things that Jesus did. He wrote about who Jesus was and what Jesus said. And the, the last few verses, the verses I just read from John chapter, four, uh, John chapter 1, starting at verse 14, they're almost like a, uh, if, if you're a musician, you can almost hear a, a symphony rising that John is introducing such important truth that, that it just, it's almost like a musical selection. The power of an orchestra <clears throat> heard in, in words. But for a moment... This morning, I want to focus on uh, a more serene musical selection, and I want to give you a little bit of history. A fellow by the name of John Jacob Niles, John Jacob Niles, spent many, many years wandering through the Appalachian Mountains. Many of you know that Barbara and I hail from the Appalachian Mountains. We're hillbillies. We grew up in those hills. And uh, it's very precious to us. And we grew up hearing a lot of the, of the Appalachian folk music. And John Jacob Niles would wander through these hills. And uh, he would investigate. He, would, uh, he wanted to find out where these songs came from. What was their origin? Uh, what was the, the basis of them? And he was, uh, he was a composer. Uh, he was especially interested in music, uh, born in Kentucky in 1892, and Niles found one song that captured his heart, and it became a monument to his years of hard work. He was in the mountains, in a mountain town in the hills of North Carolina, and he was observing all of the people going about their daily, uh, day-to-day chores, day-to-day activities, when off in the distance, he heard the voice of a young girl sitting on a bench over next to a country store, singing a melody he had never heard. 
he went to her and he sat down on the bench beside of her and he asked her, where, where, where does this song come from? Where did you learn this song? And she said, I learned it from my mother who learned it from her mother who learned it from her mother. It's been in our family for generations. He wrote the words down on a small tablet, and long after he had left the child, he can, those words just continued to haunt him. And uh, they, they, very simple, very, uh, just a song, uh, a very somber spiritual thought, but it was just filled with wonder. He spent much of his life trying to find out the origins of this song, where it came from. And he never did discover the author of this song. And he died saying to people, I believe that little girl might have been an angel who came to sing this song and to deliver that message of the wonder of that child's birth. The name of that song is I Wonder As I Wander. And I've asked my granddaughter, Hannah, to sing it for you this morning. Come on, Hannah, come and sing it for us. Jesus, the sea. 
Thank you, Hannah. You did a great job. Thank you, Hannah. I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus the Savior did come for to die for poor, ornery people like you and like I. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. Do you ever wonder? You know, we get so caught up in the bustle and the hustle, the Christmas list, the shopping list, all of the things, the, all of the trappings. When that original story came to life, as the second verse says, when Mary birthed Jesus, was in a cow stall with wise men and farmers and shepherds and all. But high from God's heaven, a star's light did fall. And the promise of the ages, it did recall. It's a beautiful song. In those verses that I read this morning, I think there are three arresting facts that John gives us about the coming of Jesus. And the first one is this. I've entitled it or called it The Great Condescension. The Great Condescension. The first part of verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, to condescend... It, it simply means to lower oneself to a level not normally occupied, physically, mentally, socially. It means to descend voluntarily to the level of another person. Now, in human terms, we think of condescension. It's, it's really not a very nice word. When we think of humans, when we condescend... It's usually done with, uh, well, with an air of contempt, uh, snobbery, of haughtiness, of condescension to say, oh, good day, I've come down to you to tell you how wonderful things are where I live. You don't live where I live. It's too bad you don't live where I live. But I've, I've come down among you uh, to fellowship with you. You get, you get the idea. Yeah. But there's another side to the use of this word. It also means to be graciously willing to do something regarded as beneath one's dignity. To get into the ditches, to get into the trenches, to put on work gloves and come along beside those who need assistance, who need help, to lift people up who are downtrodden, who are broken, who have lost their way. This is exactly what God did for you and for me. He became flesh. With some kind of mixture of divine grace and love, he performed the greatest act of condescension 
of all time and all of eternity. The word that John personified is the very expression and manifestation of God himself. The creative power of God was in the Word. Very early in that chapter, of chapter 1, verse 3, he says, The Word was God. The Word was with God. And all of, with such limitless power, with such uh, uh, unfathomable knowledge, with such transcendent majesty, the Word of God condescended into human flesh. Paul says in the book of Philippians, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and became a servant. John purposely uses a very crude word, the word flesh. The Greek culture was predominant throughout the world at that day, and, 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 and the Greeks recoiled. Uh, they, they pulled back from the word flesh when it was applied to deity. No god would ever condescend to flesh because flesh is temporary and it's dirty and it's corrupted and it's going to be cast off. No God that we serve would ever have anything to do with the flesh and yet that's exactly what God did. He entered human flesh. He became a man. And in becoming flesh, he accepted the limitations of humanity. He became vulnerable to those natural human weaknesses that accompany our flesh. Hunger, thirst, physical weariness, pain. He experienced the emotional trauma that we experience. Disappointment, sorrow, hurt, loneliness, rejection, abandonment. And if you're here this morning and, and any of those things apply to your life now or at some point, remember you're not experiencing anything Jesus didn't experience before you. He is, he is familiar with all of our struggles. No man can ever say to Jesus, but you don't understand. You, you don't get what I'm going through. You can't possibly feel my pain. But he does. But he did. He became flesh. When Jesus, Jesus committed no sin, and that's an important piece of theology, but we're not going to deal with that this morning. Let it just suffice to say, Jesus did not commit any sin. He experienced sin. In a way that is mo more overwhelming than you and I have ever experienced sin. Why did he cry out in Gethsemane with such horror? Father, if, there, if, it's, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Why did he, as the Bible tells us, did he sweat great drops of blood and say to his father, Abba, Father, please. 
Is there another way? But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was not about to succumb to the temptation of sin. He wasn't struggling against this temptation to commit sin. What he was preparing for was to drink the cup that contained all of the sins of all of humanity. You know, James and John at one time came to Jesus and, and they said, Lord, when, when you come into the kingdom, uh, and you know, they brought their mama with them too, you know, to kind of plead for them. When, when you come into your kingdom, may you grant to us that one would sit on your right and one would sit on your left. And Jesus said to them, to sit on, he who sits on my right or my left is not mine to give. But then he looked at his disciples, James and John, and as they're begging him for this place of prominence, they didn't want to condescend. They wanted to ascend. He said to them, can you drink of my cup? Are you able to drink of my cup? And foolishly they said, oh, we're able. And as a matter of fact, they did. James was executed and John lived out his last years of life in exile. But they could never drink fully of the cup that Jesus drank from because that cup contained your sin and my sin. All of our failure, all of our wickedness, all of our meanness, all of our rebellion, all of our, all of our uh, attitudes, our hate, our lust. Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus became sin. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. Imagine it. I, I do sometimes. I, 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 I realize that I'm, I'm in sin. My, I've, I've had sinful thoughts. I've had sinful attitudes. I've had sinful actions. I've snapped at my wife and bit the cat or whatever it is, and I feel guilty. That's right order, right? I, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I feel the guilt of that. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever labored under the guilt of your sin? I mean, really feeling really bad. Feeling that maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Feeling that maybe I've failed. Feeling that maybe I haven't lived up. I haven't lived up to the expectations, my expectations, their expectations, mom and daddy's expectations, the world's expectation. Have you ever felt that guilt? Have you ever felt that load, that weight? Imagine what Jesus felt when God declared him guilty of all of our sin. In an instant, the weight of our sins was cast upon him. He lived among us, John says. He literally means he pitched his tent. He cast his lot. He moved in with us. <clears throat> and they had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And now the tabernacle, that feast has been fulfilled. The scriptures say he tabernacled with us. God came.
You know, if, if you, how many, you know, we watch movies and we see all of these movies about the Greek gods and the Roman gods. You know where they are? They're all up there somewhere. Looking down from celestial palaces, looking down their deific noses and, and, and mocking men and laughing at them and how foolish they are and how weak they are and how stubborn they are and how they're there and we're here. Our God came and lived among us. He became one of us. We could touch him. John could lay his head over on his shoulder. The lame man could feel his touch. The blind man could feel his touch. That woman that Pastor Brian spoke about last week that was dragged before Jesus, naked and ashamed, caught in the act of adultery, she heard his voice. As he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The woman at the well who lived a life of decadence and, and, and abandonment, married after marriage after marriage after marriage, never being happy, never being satisfied, heard the voice of God say, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. I love the line in the song, Mary, Did You Know? Where the singer says, Mary, did you know that when you kissed your sleeping baby, you kissed the face of God? He pitched his tit among us. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's another Great truth here. It's in the second part of that verse. It says, And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the word glory. Human beings, human beings can achieve a degree of earthly glory. I don't know, a person performs some outstanding deed, some benevolent act, or makes a great monetary contribution, or catches a touchdown at the last moment and suddenly becomes the world's heroes, and we get this fleeting moment of glory. And often a person's, person receives honor and in a blaze of admiration and appreciation, or a person makes some astounding discovery that, that he's like Jonas Salk who perfected the polio vaccine or Louis Pasteur who made it safe for us to consume milk products and various things. But the first time we see the glory of God is when he says, let there be light. And the glory of God filled the earth. What light was that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not. But God said, there, said, let there be light, and there was light. And then later on, he said, oh, let's create a sun, too. The sun came later. The light came first. Where did that light come from? It was the light of the glory of God that filled the universe. God's glory filled the earth with indescribable beauty. 
And the glory of God next appears in a mysterious cloud that hovered over the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. This cloud joined them at the Red Sea and it lit up their night and it guided their path. But John wrote, We have seen His glory. But listen to the whole voice, the whole verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. John only not writes it here in his gospel. He mentions it again in his letter to the seven churches in Asia. It's manifested every time he performed a miracle in his life-giving teachings that, that, that captured people and convicted them of their sin and showed them the desire that his desire to forgive them and to make them his children. Jesus' glory was revealed when he was transfigured with Moses and Elijah before uh, Peter, James, and John. What about now? What about now? Is it possible for us to observe his glory today? God's glory does not abide in one person as it did when he was with Jesus. But now the Holy Spirit is with us and it abides, abides within us. The glory of God dwells within every believer. It's present not just in stained glass window experiences that we have in corporate worship assemblies, but it's in the marketplace. I want you to think about this. It's in the marketplace. It's in the school union. It's in the school room. It's on the athletic field. And every day it takes place in homes. Every time we become the hands of Jesus. Every time we become the feet of Jesus. Every time we minister. You know that Jesus said to his church... The works that I have done, greater works than I have done, you shall do every time. Listen, you folks who work down in the food pantry, I don't know if you realize it or not, but every time you hand somebody a bag of groceries, they are beholding the glory of God. The glory of God is seen every time you sit down with someone and show them in the scriptures how they can come into a personal relationship. They are experiencing the glory of God. Every time you come together corporately and we lift up our voices and we sing, the glory of God is being manifested. Jesus reacted to human suffering when he healed the sick and crippled bodies into human hunger, when he fed the multitudes and human sorrow, when he raised Lazarus and the widow of the, uh, the widow's son. The glory of God, and we have seen it. And it dwells among us and we Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 foretelling the ministry that the church would have in the world you are the light of the world so let your light shine that men seeing your good works would glorify your father who is in heaven you are the representation of Jesus. Jesus dwells in you and I. His Holy Spirit dwells in you and I. And we can release before human eyes to see the glory of God every day of our lives. Because He not only came to dwell with us, He came to dwell within us. That 
men might behold his glory. I want to read just one more passage, just from verse 18 of our passage. No one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Jesus said to the disciples, John chapter 14, Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you and where I am, that where I am you may be. He said, you know where I'm going. You know the way. During that conversation, one of the disciples said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that that he is the express image of the Father. Moses had an overwhelming desire to see God. In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. I want to see your face. I want to see you. And we can't, we shouldn't have too much of a difficult time wondering why. Moses, we're, we're studying Moses in our men's fellowship on Monday nights. And we've talked a lot about the weight of responsibility that Moses carried. When God called him and said, I want you to go to Egypt, demand that Pharaoh release my people. You're going to lead them out into the wilderness. You're going to guide them through the wilderness. And you're going to bring them. You're going to deliver them into a place of promise. And all the way, the people of God were murmuring and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. And they didn't like the food. And they didn't like the water. And they didn't like this. And they didn't like that. And they didn't like the heat. And they didn't like the cold at night. And they were always wanting to go back. And Moses labored alone often under that weight and at one point in the book of Exodus he says God just let me know you're with me show me your face I think he often reached that point of exasperation because the people would rebel against his leadership and I think often he had a a sense of desperation a sense of Maybe I can't do this, but if I can just see the glory of God, if you can just show me that you're with me, I can go on, I can press on. John declared that in Jesus, we have the full revelation of God. No longer is he far away, mysterious, awesome, and unapproachable in his glory and majesty. Instead, Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. And face to face with man, he communicated the love and the tenderness of our God through his teachings, through his compassion towards sinful, hurting, broken, desperate people. The people said of him, no one has ever spoke like this. His enemies said of him, his enemies said of him, this truly was the son of God. As that Roman centurion thrust the spear in his side and blood and water poured forth, he saw him as he was. Mystery. Mystery is one of our English words that covers a lot of territory. There are many kinds of mysteries. My wife used to read, uh, who was it, honey? Rex Stout. 
I don't know how many of you know who Rex Stout was. He's a mystery writer. Well, let me give you a more familiar name, Agatha Christie. They write all these mysteries, the whodunits, and you're captivated through the whole story, the innumerable scientific mysteries that exist. I was describing to someone not too long ago, they wanted, I had a heart procedure back in March, and they wanted to know what they did. And I said, well, they went up through my femoral veins, and they put these catheters up all the way into the upper chambers of my heart and when it got there they blew up a balloon that had electrical uh, sensors in it and they mapped my heart and they identified the cells that were sending the random signals and they cauterized them so that they would stop sending the random signals and then they pulled all of that apparatus out of me and today I don't have a heart condition that's a mystery I can describe it but I can't understand it there are mysteries. I, I look at what they do in modern science. The, the things that, that we have today that men 50 years ago couldn't have imagined. We, we saw things on Star Trek that we're using now. But I want to describe a mystery to you. And it's not... Cars that run on batteries or medicines that fix diseases or procedures that invade human organs and make them right. But the greatest mystery of all is that of the incarnation of the Son of God. That moment in time and eternity when God chose by His own mysterious methods to become a man. I want you to just... just Chew on that for a second. He didn't pretend to be a man. He didn't disguise himself as a man. He didn't come as some sort of apparition where he appeared to be a man. The Bible tells us that he became a man. And there are those who believe that when Jesus disappeared up into the clouds that, that that whole illusion was gone and that Jesus turned back into his spirit and that, uh, and that uh, somehow the, the mystery was over, the job was done. How many of you are looking for Jesus to come? I'm going to tell you who you're going to see come in the clouds. The same one that ascended up into the clouds. The same one who bore the scars in, his palm, in the wrists and feet and his side for your own. The same one. The same man who walked with James and John and Peter and Andrew and all of those kings. The same one who healed the woman with the issue of blood. The same one who raised the dead. The same one who caused the blind eyes to see. The same one who fed 5,000 with a, two loaves of, uh, you know, whatever it was, fish and biscuits. Uh, that's the one who's coming because he became a man. Forever he became a man. He identified with us. Find me a Roman God who would be willing to do that. He became a man. And a man he is even till today. That's a mystery for the ages. How? Why? Because a man had to die for the sins of man. A God could not die for the sins of man 
Some, some spirit could not die for the sins. It had to be a man. He represented the human race on the cross. He hung there in our place. God became a man. Now let me just warn you. He didn't stop being God. That's the mystery. He is fully God. But praise be to God. He is fully man. He is one of us. Jesus gave the world the eternal revelation of who God is and what he longs to become to those who place their trust in him. What can you say about him today? You can observe his glory. Not with the natural eye, but with the eye of the soul. You can experience it. You can know what God is like through a personal encounter with His Son in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can experience the wonder that Joseph experienced when the angel revealed to him that his beloved Mary would give birth to the Son of God who would be the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing that was made could be made. He is the creator of the universe. He is the potentate of the cosmos. He is the sole occupier of the throne of the ages. And he became a man so that he might die for us. So this morning I want to encourage you as we, as we fly into this Christmas season which can get so busy and so filled with activities, don't let the allure of the lights and the sparkly things, and the special things, don't allow it to blind you to the secret, the mystery that God became a man. And now because He did, we can say, we can sing that song. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. He became one of us. Lived among us. Was touched. John said in 1 John chapter 1. He said that, was that which was from the beginning we have seen it with our eyes. We have handled it with our hands. We have touched it. We have heard him. John was saying, this is not something I read in a book. This is not something that I had in a dream. This is not some story that was passed down to me from the forefathers. I saw him. I heard his voice. I touched his face. And I felt his Touch. That's the God we serve today. Don't let 
the, the, the twinkling of the Christmas lights drown out that light which came to live among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, the mystery of it all. I, I, think, I think, Father, and I think we have to ask forgiveness that so often we get caught up in the story around the story, that we miss the story, that we miss the heart of the story. We, 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 we see the beauty of the nativity and, and, and we always make our nativity so beautiful that we might all want to live there. They're so beautiful. We, we lose the fact that you sent your son not first to the palaces, not to the halls of government, not to the kings of the kingdoms of this world, but you implanted your son in the womb of a lowly virgin girl from Galilee, from Bethlehem. And he was born in a cow stall. His bed was made of hay. And his first clothing were the clothing that would wrap a newborn lamb in. And the first people to see stand around his manger were the lowest of the low, the outcast of the community, the least that we would expect to attend the birth of a king and the eternal God. But I believe in that moment when that child came forth, Mary held him in her arms nursed him at her breast. Even though she had the testimony of the angel, how could she comprehend that she literally was holding to her breast God in the flesh? Came in tenderness and lowliness and humility because that's who He came to save. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that we have seen your glory in the person of our Savior. You have condescended. You have come low that we might see you, that we might feel your touch, and that you might transform our lives. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, and the whole church said, Amen. Stand to your feet as we close today. Hallelujah. You step down.